Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 225. This week, we talk with Kenny Kerr about C++, WinRT, and interop between all the things. Spray your way to GitHub success. Write your HTML in an innovative new language known as HTML. And how satellites are watching us all. To celebrate the launch of their .NET Core support for APM, Raygun is giving away a free Raspberry Pi prize pack to a lucky winner. All you need to do is go to raygun.com slash dev dash show, and Raygun will let the winner know via email. Don't wait, because the winner will be chosen by July 22nd. This week, we have Kenny Kerr. He's a principal software engineer at Microsoft, where he works on C++ tools and libraries for the Windows operating system. And Kenny is also the creator of C++ WinRT. How's it going, Kenny? Good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and I think we, uh, I think we had a, it was a listener, right, Carl, who mentioned, like, you got to get this guy on. <laughs> yes, uh, this is actually a request. So if you are interested in the technology or, uh, or know somebody who's really awesome about talking about specific technology, let us know. We will get him on the show. Absolutely. And that makes it easy for us because we're lazy. Yes. <laughs> um, and then you want to talk about stickers, Carl? Yeah, I just want to remind people that, uh, you know, if you uh, send an email to feedback at msdevshow.com with stickers in the subject line and your name and address in the body of the email, we will mail you some stickers. I notice we get a spike every time an episode goes out. Uh, usually like 8 to 24 hours afterwards, I get a ton of emails uh, requesting stickers and we love sending them out. So keep those coming in. Hmm, I don't have one. I'm going to have to email you guys. Absolutely. Uh, actually I'm going to be out there next week. I can, you're in Redmond, I assume. Yeah, I'm in Redmond. Okay. I can stop by and bring stickers. Sounds good. <laughs> the sticker fairy will visit you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then for the comment of the week, Carl, this is actually one that I saw and, uh, responded. Well, I'm sure you saw it too, but I responded to yep. it. Uh, so this was Mike DePau, I think is how you say it, which if that's how it's pronounced, that's really cool. At spotted man on Twitter. At Spotted Man, yep. So uh, he said, few points of feedback on the latest episode, one one of which I totally ignored, by the way, um, but I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so the first one here was, I couldn't hear Joe Rogan's voice, so that fancy feature you're excited about didn't work for me. Um, and then when I think about it, sort of out of context, um, it, it makes it sound like we had Joe Rogan on the show, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. Um and so I, I replied to that and I said, hey, sorry about the glitch. And I wasn't quite sure what happened. Then I was standing there and I was, I was at a coffee shop, actually, and I was thinking about it. And I'm like, you know what? It's it's because I had the combined track was feeding back into my ears. But when it, what we do, the thing that we do to get like phenomenal sound quality is we have everybody record their own track. And we we use those as the primary. And I, I can always go to backup tracks if we have to. But basically by using the individual tracks, of course, since Joe Rogan wasn't actually on the show, that did not get mixed in. So if we ever do audio like that again, I just have to remember to uh, to mix that in. So that had to be a little confusing because there was just basically blank audio in that part of the podcast. And it also shows you I don't listen to the show either. So because uh, <laughs> I'm kind of here living it. So Mike, thank you for uh, for pointing that out, and we will try to uh, we'll try to do better at that going forward. Yep. And if you want to get mentioned on the show like Mike, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on our website or Twitter. We especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. Absolutely. Um, and then I also wanted to mention one way that our listeners can really help us out. One thing that I wanted to mention, you know, we've had Raygun as a sponsor for a long time and, and they've just been they've just been amazing to work with. Uh, we really love working with them. And, uh, and I love it cause they have a phenomenal product. And then, uh, JD Trask too, like, he's just an awesome guy. Um, I follow him on Twitter and, and, um, he always has, uh, um, a really interesting perspective on things. And, and I just really enjoy that. So, um, they have, uh, basically they've, they've added .NET core support to their APM product and they're giving away, um, so what they're doing is they're giving away a Raspberry Pi prize pack. So it's Raspberry Pi plus some other stuff, um, to an MS Dev Show listener. So that's not just, that's just not, not anybody anywhere. You have to be an MS Dev Show listener. Um, and I guess I just wanted to, you know, ask people to go out there and fill out the form that's out there. I think it just asks you like if you're using it or I don't know, ask for your email or something. And, uh, you can find that at raygun.com slash dev dash show. Um, and then they'll let you know, uh, via email, but, um, you know, this is Raygun supports everything that we do. 
And this is one of those times when we can really help them out. So if you enjoy the show, I just ask that everybody go out there and do that because that just that really helps. And, you know, just like at Build, we had lots of people go up to their booth and ask about the podcast and and ask for stickers uh, that they had there. And uh, that just makes them excited to work with us. And then that makes us more excited to uh, to do the show. So I just wanted to put a little plug in there. And if you're interested in the prize, I can tell you from running these contests in the past, you have a really excellent chance of being selected as a winner. So yeah. go out, hit up that URL, and uh, put your name in. Yeah, it's amazing. Worst- out of thousands of people, I mean, people are just lazy, right? Like, I never sign up for these things. Like, I know how that goes, right? So what ends up happening is you get, you know, three people out of 10,000 that actually fell out the form and they're like, Oh my God, I won. I can't believe I won. And it's like, yeah, you had pretty good odds. It's just like, well, it even happens at work too. I mean, yeah. like somebody put in our, our team's channel, like it, please fill out this form. It'll take three minutes. I'm like, Oh, three minutes isn't that bad. So I clicked on the URL. Yeah. And then it sat there for a day. And then when I looked at it, I'm like, Oh, there's too many things here. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't have stuff I could win and coming back to me. So yeah, not, not to go on too much of a tangent, but my dad was actually just telling me the story. He does a lot of work for the police department and, uh, they had this scholarship that they, that they give out. And, uh, my dad knew of a good candidate and he filled out the form, but they, he ended up like stopping. He stopped filling out the form like halfway through because the candidate, um, he's like, Oh, I'm missing like these three qualifications. So, um, the, the, the police department was asking my dad about it. He's like, well, we stopped because, you know, there were, he was missing all of these requirements. And they said, ah, oh, just bring it in anyway. And basically they picked like the, it was like the two or three most, uh, qualified candidates, but they only had three people apply for the scholarship at all. And I think only one actually met the qualifications. And they ended up writing out checks on the spot, you know, to name, you know, to the person. Um, so it was just amazing, like how easy some of these things are. And, uh, and how few people do it. So just don't be one of those people that doesn't do it. Don't be like Carl and I, uh, go out there and, uh, and do that. So anyway, we, we spent a lot of time on that, but it it is funny how human nature works in that way. Um, okay. So let's move on to the news. Cause we have some really interesting stories here. So this first one here, Carl writing messages in GitHub history graph. Yeah. So the, the, First part I wasn't exactly excited about, but it, it kind of led somewhere interesting. So somebody put out this little Twitter comment. It says it has taken a year of carefully planned commits, but my war on F sharp uh, can finally begin. And they actually in their GitHub commit graph wrote F sharp sucks over the course of a year, <laughs> That's which, is, funny. which is, which is, yeah, it's just rude though. Cause like, like what did F sharp do to anybody? Like, I, Precisely. I, I don't think anybody dislikes F sharp. In fact, you either you're either neutral on it or you've used it and you love it. I don't. I'd have never met anybody in this camp. But that. But that's yeah. some serious devotion. Yeah, that is. But what what I found like really hilarious is like the first comment that shows up underneath it is somebody's like, "You could have done it in a few seconds." And there's this GitHub project called GitHub Spray, which will let you type out a message or even like create an image. And it'll like back create all of the commits that it would take to write that out. Right. Yeah. I've seen, wow. I've seen different tools to do this. So yeah, if you want to do that. And I was thinking about it too, I'm like, I don't, I wouldn't want to mess up like my uh, existing repositories or anything, but really you just have to add a repository because it aggregates all the different repositories. But you know, I write so much code that every day is dark. So this tool won't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and there's a comment on this Twitter post. It says, I am colorblind and cannot read this. What does it say? And uh, I, I'm not buying that because I'm colorblind and like I can read it perfectly fine. Uh, but the reply to it, it says F sharp is F sharp is very good. And I know you can rewrite history and get, <laughs> but anyway, that was actually from the original author. So, um, so yeah, that's an easy way to do that. Um, new Apple iCloud for windows app that integrates with windows 10 file explorer. Yeah. So this was kind of interesting because this is actually, uh, a new windows application that's in the Microsoft store that not only gives you iCloud support, but it integrates with windows Explorer exactly the same way that OneDrive does. So you can see what files are, are locally, which ones are in the cloud only. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so if you're an iPhone user and a Mac user that also has a Windows computer where you're using iCloud uh, for some of that storage, you can now easily um, browse all of that cloud storage uh, from your uh, existing Windows Explorer. Well, and how cool is it that like I didn't realize that the 
that basically the windows API that OneDrive is using, um, apparently is available because it says it uses the same tech that powers OneDrive files on demand. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, precisely. So, I mean, that's, yeah. it, it's amazing. Like I'm sure that took a, a, a while for us to build. Mm-hmm. In an open way, just so, uh, because the OneDrive team could have like wedged that technology in. Well, and that's kind of what I expected. Not, not to like speak to like the OneDrive team or anything, but I mean, as a developer, like that's just the easy way to do it. Um, but it also ignores, you know, your, your, um, the whole ecosystem. So, I mean, they did the right thing, obviously. Yeah, there's been a philosophy in Windows that we should only have developers use public APIs, and so you know, traditionally it's been well, sure, you, we can we can give you an internal API for that, but but these days it's very very hard to do that. There, there's a big push for everyone to use public APIs. So if if OneDrive needs something, we're going to give them a public API for that, and then anyone else can use it as well. So I think that's goodness for everyone. Yeah, well, that's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Um, and the next story here: writing HTML in HTML. Yeah. So. The author of this blog had talked about like how they've rewritten their blog a ton of times and how they just kind of like went backwards and just said, you know what, I'm just going to do it for a final time and I'm just going to write it by hand in HTML. And, you know, it kind of goes through, uh, you know, some of the reasons for it. But, you know, part of it is, is why do we have a lot of these indirections and over-engineering when oftentimes it's not needed? In this case, it's it's a personal blog. It's not like it's something professional where there's like a ton of CMS uh, behind it. But the other thing that really was interesting is he referenced another blog post that encouraged people to write a blog where this wasn't an option that was given. There was always like use this framework or use this product or use this CMS. And, you know, sometimes the basics are are good enough. Um, you know, writing HTML by hand can be a pain, but if all you're doing is just taking like a template that you've pre-made, copying and pasting that and just typing some text in, uh, you can get a really good result. Yeah. I think writing HTML is nearly impossible. So, I mean, I was going to answer your question earlier, like why, why not do it this way? And it's because, I mean, we're human and we're just terrible. Like it's really, it's really difficult to write HTML and people are going to wonder like what I mean by that. So, I mean, I I definitely have to explain a little bit. Um, If I give you a text editor and maybe this is a little unfair, but I give you a text editor and I say, write me this page with all this formatting and blah, 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 blah. And I just hand it over and I say, do this. Um, You know, if you paste that into a validator, um, odds are like, it's going to find something wrong. Um, and, and I speak from experience and maybe it's just me as a terrible dev or something, but, um, I, my blog originally worked like that. I actually wrote all the HTML for the posts and, uh, I had a lot of bad broken HTML in there. You'd forget a tag or, you know, whatever, like you just make like simple mistakes cause you're focusing on the content and not on the formatting. So that's why when Markdown came around and started to, to rise in popularity, I'm like, this is perfect. Because now it's impossible for me to write incorrect HTML because I'm not writing it. I'm sending, you know, this this uh, pre-formatted stuff to something that is going to write the HTML for me. So that was my big motivation for switching. Um, I it sounds like what he's actually making a bigger argument for is actually just getting rid of the engine. You know, just keep it simple. And he just even each individual post he said it's like well. I'm going to, you know, if the, if the formatting is different, then who cares? Like, it's just going to be different on every single page. It is what it is. And I'm just going to move on. So I think writing your stuff in Markdown makes sense. Save those, maybe translate that in HTML and then, and then follow what, what he's saying. I, that's my take on this. Yeah. And even doing things in Markdown, you get a lot of this stuff where things might not be the same from page to page. Uh, I was just, doing the show notes for a previous episode and you know i forgot the order that i normally do things in i'm like is it guest first or news first i can't remember yeah and i i didn't even look back at what we normally do i just kind of made like a, a judgment call on the spot and like you know what if it's different it's different yeah i mean yeah who cares on on that portion of course of course but um yeah i don't know i'm i'm still a huge fan of markdown i think that's that's the way to go i think what he's saying though around the engine portion is totally valid and like our website, for example, I mean, we use, we had Brandon Martinez do all the, he did all the design and everything. And now it's like this black box of magic to me. And I would love to switch, um, markdown generators, but we're, we're like way too customized in uh, DocPad, and DocPad's having all these issues. And I don't know, we're just in a really bad place right now. 
Um, so well, we I have the markdown. So if we one. ever do need to change, we at least have the content. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the content is important. I think, I think if we ever change though, what's going to happen is our website is going to look totally different. Um, oh, yeah. unless we get Brandon involved again, cause he's using like bourbon and neat and all these other things that I just don't know how to use. And I don't know, it's just a bit much. So I understand what, uh, what the, uh, the guy saying that, that wrote this, this John, a Karstrom. I understand what he's saying. Or I understand the pain that he was feeling and why he feels this way, but I'm, I'm not sure HTML itself is the answer. I guess it is for him, but I don't know if that's the answer that everybody should, should use. Should we move on? What do we got next here? Oh, this one was uh, one that I found that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, so it was a twit. It was actually a, a, a tweet and it said, here's a question. Why would you willingly add a dependency on a one liner in a package uh, like is odd is windows, etc. Um, and he pointed out an example here is dash windows is used by 2.5 million repositories on GitHub. And it is a function that returns process.platform equals equals win 32. <laughs> so, um, we have this crazy web of, of dependencies and actually there's, there's one that's worse. And I, I guess like the vast majority of these are made by one guy, which is this, uh, John, uh, Schlinkert. And so, uh, we'll post this in the show notes, but one of these examples is, is dash valid dash path. And, uh, what it does is it, in, it, re, it includes a package called is invalid path. And then it returns is invalid path equals, equals, equals false. So, um, it's a package that basically just negates the output of a different package. And that root package is actually just one single line of code. So this is a good question. I mean, this is, I think we've just reached insane levels here. I think there's so much overhead in this. I think people in the beginning used to do this with like DLLs. I saw a lot of this like, oh, I've got a hundred DLLs in my project. And it's like, why? Like you're the only person working on it and you're breaking it up prematurely for nothing. And now it's like, oh, here I'm using a thousand, you know, node packages. And uh, so I don't know. I don't know when this insanity is going to end. Um, I don't know if you guys have any comments on that. I think dependencies are just a, a such a difficult thing for developers. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan, for example, of the sysinternals tools and the idea that you could take any one of those executables and copy it onto any machine and it just runs, it just works. There's right. no DLL, there's no installer. And uh, like recently, uh, if you look at my blog, I, I talk about C plus plus one OT. There's a tool cpp one ot dot exe that that follows that philosophy where you just copy it onto a machine and the. De- the dependencies, the dependencies are such now that you can literally take that uh, executable and copy it on a Windows Vista machine, and it'll just run. There are no dependencies that it requires That's outside great. of the executable itself. So, so, the, but the web and the and, and the managed a lot of these managed languages they've really pushed towards this world where everything's reusable and shared and and interconnected, and I think it just makes the the whole the whole stack so brittle. Because if anything's missing or, or slightly changed, everything just falls down. And unless you're a super expert in whatever it is, you have no way of figuring out how to track down all those dependencies and figure them out. And it hurts the customer. Yep. I think this is one of those cases where you should just find that one line of code that you need and just paste it in and just be done with it. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it's just that simple. The only argument I would I would think you could make against that is because uh, I have made one of these small-ish packages and the idea was it would tell you if the code was running in Azure or not. And there was a way of checking and I actually worked with like the networking team and, and they said, well, this is what you can do. I, I don't even know if it works anymore, <laughs> but my point is had I, um, if I were to diligently, uh, 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 or diligently maintain that project, then as, as Azure changes, I could update that, that project and then the next time people build their software, they would get the latest version of that and it would continue to work. That's the idea anyway. But I, I think what ends, actually ends up happening is these projects, don't, they just don't get uh, maintained. So we probably talked that to death so we can move on. <laughs> the last one here I think is really interesting from a technology standpoint. How hedge funds use satellite images to beat Wall Street. Yeah, so um, this article talks about being able to use satellite imagery in particular looking at uh, retailers. So you know where Walmart and Target and other kinds of uh grocery stores or, you know, retailers are physically, and you can see their parking lots. Uh, that's something that a satellite can easily take a picture of. And what they were doing is uh, looking at the parking lots, seeing how full they were and 
trying to use that as a way to gauge the financial health of how that business was doing that week, that month, that quarter, and, uh, you know, trying to get an edge, you know, predicting, you know, how that business is going to do. And, uh, according to this uh, article, it says you can get a four to five percent uh, advantage over your competition by having this information. And, you know, this kind of goes on to like, you know, is this public information? If you have this technology or if you don't, does that give you an unfair advantage or not? Um, but one of the things I think is kind of interesting is, you know, are some of these companies realizing that this is happening and are we going to soon see things that, uh, uh, are ways for some of these companies to manipulate their parking lots to make it look like they're doing uh, better <laughs> or worse than what they are. I mean, could you put down uh, paint that looks like a vehicle and maybe even have it color changing with the with temperature so oh, it looks man. like there's different cars there at different times of day? <laughs> I mean, you could, this could get very interesting as you try to, you know, manipulate the data to make yourself look good. Uh, for these, you know, Wall Street investors. Yeah. So I actually heard about this. So it looks like, um, I think this was the podcast. I'll, I'll post it in the show notes. Uh, but Planet Money actually covered this back at the end of 2017. Um, and I really found it fascinating because, yeah, they were looking at, um, uh, they were looking at like oil tanks and things like that. But I mean, you can tell all sorts of things. Like you can tell like the height of ships in, in the water. Um, you know, just the, the general traffic that's going around. It's, it's actually amazing at, and the height of ships correlate to how much cargo they're yeah, carrying. It's amazing what you can, what, what insights you can get just from that. You know, people are all afraid about like drones, like looking in their windows, which, um, you know, just because of light differences does I mean, doesn't even, you can't, you can't look in people's windows during the day, but anyway, <laughs> the, um, you know, they're not thinking of, about the satellite that's like, you know, a couple layers above that, um, that can actually, uh, monitor them more than what you think. And I, I got to think the government's got to be all over that as well. So, you know, just keep that in mind. You don't, you don't get any vertical privacy unless you put a roof over it. So, but yeah, this is super interesting tech. And I think on planet money too, they were, uh, their big thing, they actually launched their own satellite, uh, cause it's actually super inexpensive now, by the way. Um, they were talking about these cube sats. I think they're like a, a, it's like a square. It's like a cube. That's like a foot by a foot by a foot. Uh, they're really small and, uh, they're super inexpensive. Well, I shouldn't say super inexpensive, but they're reasonably inexpensive to actually launch your, launch your own satellite and do with it what you want. So, yep, definitely something to think about. Um, okay, let's move on to the topic at hand, which is, uh, C++ and I, well, I would say C++ and C++ WinRT, which are two really cool topics. So let's just get into it. So I think the um, uh, the first question that we have, Kenny, is just is around, you know, if you have these developers who might be doing UWP work and, and they've done like C Sharp work, um, like how do I get started in this whole world of C++ development? And is it is it difficult? Would it be difficult for me to do that? Uh, sure, it's a good question. I, th I think there's a lot of confusion, unfortunately, based on you know a lot of the marketing terms that that Microsoft's come up with over the years, especially around uh, Windows 8 and onwards. Uh, for example, UWP itself. What does that even mean? And I think it's it's useful to just take a step back. So if you if we if we're talking about C++ development, uh, we have C++ WinRT. Now, what is that? So the C++ part is is very clear. That's C++ 17. That's the standard C++ version that we, that we all know and love. And then there's WinRT, and WinRT is just the Windows runtime. But the question is, what is the Windows runtime, and how does that relate to something like UWP? Uh, so there's a couple of things that the, the Windows runtime is not. So I would, I would, and I've, I've mentioned this before at places like Build. Uh, the, the Windows runtime is not only for building store apps. That's sort of a, a common refrain. And that's not at all the case. You can use the Windows runtime, uh, today to build desktop apps, console apps, NT services. In fact, the, the Surface line of products that we develop at Microsoft, their device drivers are built with C++ WinRT. So this is clearly not about store apps only. Uh, the Windows runtime is also not a collection of Windows APIs. Uh, again, this is a, is a fundamental technology. It's not any given API like XAML or composition or storage. Uh, 
And finally, the Windows Runtime is not the universal Windows platform. That's really just a set of uh, APIs that are available broadly on a number of platforms. Uh, the Windows Runtime itself is really a, a way for developers to communicate across component boundaries. So uh, at, at, its, at its heart, you have an ABI, an application binary interface, and that's a, a, a convention that we use to formalize how uh, how method calls are made essentially across uh, component boundaries, regardless of language. And then the the, the the key thing that the Windows Runtime has that COM, for example, didn't have is that the Windows Runtime has metadata. And the metadata is the way that we describe which calls you can actually make across those component boundaries. And finally, we have the language projections. And C++ 1 or T is the language projection, or you might use .NET. Uh, but that the language projections job is to actually bind those conventions into a given language and make them natural and familiar. So you might have a component written in C-sharp, making calls into a component written in C++. Traditionally, that would be really, really hard. But because of the Windows runtime, because of the metadata, and because of the language projection support on both sides, it makes it very simple. So, it, you know, given that sort of background, the Windows runtime is really just the foundational technology we use for uh, for basically all modern APIs that the Windows operating system provides. So as a developer, you're coming to Windows uh, either with C-sharp or C++ as your background. It's really more about how do I write Windows apps? How do I write components for the Windows operating system? And and many of the newer APIs are, are, are offered through uh, the Windows runtime as the foundational technology. And and your your language of choice makes that available in a very... A unique way, perhaps. So that that might look a certain way in C sharp. It might look different uh, in C plus plus because those languages are very different. But as a C plus plus developer, uh, you want something that is natural and familiar to a C plus plus developer. And that was this mistake we made, or Microsoft made. Uh, this is before my time, but Microsoft made with C plus plus CX. That was a bunch of extensions to the C plus plus language, and it was assumed that that would help the developer make their apps work uh, more effectively and integrate better with the Windows operating system. System. But C++ uh, developers uh, broadly rejected that. They wanted standard C++ and a standard C++ uh, library. So the, the, the thing that makes C++ unique is that there, it's a rich language that serves two customers. The one customer is the library developer, and the other customer is the app developer. And really, they're, they're, they're almost like two different languages. As an app developer, you use the high-level concepts, very similar to C-sharp. You have classes, you have methods, you have properties. Or you don't have properties, but you have things like properties, like fields, for example, on a struct. And then the library developer has these other advanced features. You have templates, you have metaprogramming, and, uh, and so you... You, you can get into a place where uh, an app developer can come to the Windows operating system and build their apps very simply, and a library developer can come along and provide all of the glue behind the scenes that the average app developer doesn't have to think about. So C++ T, what it does is it takes care of all of the glue, all of the plumbing to make those APIs very uh, available to a developer, but as a library, and that's the key. We don't want to, uh, as a C++ developer, you don't want to be able to uh, be forced into using packages or, or custom compiler extensions. You just want to be able to consume uh, your your APIs, your libraries as header files, as you know, hash include Windows.h, hash include whatever namespace that I want to uh, make use of, or whatever library I want to make use of. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to learn a whole new model for packaging or for development. And so C++ T takes that philosophy. It's it's just a library and a set of tools that make it easier for you as a C++ developer to write your apps for Windows, just like you can today write apps for Windows with C-sharp very easily. Now you can do so very easily with C++ as well. Uh, that may have been too broad, but hopefully that helps address the question. <laughs> no, because I, I, I was wondering too, like whenever you're talking about that, so that, that addresses the, the, the last part that you were talking about was the C++ to... Uh, I guess manage side. So like, let's just say C plus plus to, to C sharp. Right. And then did you, did you mention to you, it's, it, it makes it easy to go, or, or maybe it's not part of win RT, but you can go the other direction easily as well. Right. You can go from C sharp to C plus plus. Yeah. So, well, so there's two different things. So yeah. if you're pure, if you're just thinking about writing an application, it's, you know, either in C sharp or C plus plus and the backend, the APIs, the operating system is obviously all written in C plus mm-hmm. plus. Uh, but then there's the scenario where you might have a mixed application. You have, might have different components written in different languages yep. or even the case where you just simply have a C sharp application calling Windows APIs. And guess what? Those APIs are written in C plus plus. And so there's a way for that to happen. And okay. that's through that 
application binary interface. Okay. So the C, so the C, so many of the of the new Windows APIs are actually written with C plus plus WinRT, but you're calling them from C sharp in your C sharp application. And so WinRT is the technology that provides that ABI that these two different languages agree on and make that possible. Which also means that if you have an application where you want to use, say, C-sharp for the front end because it's convenient and C++ for the back end because it's more efficient, uh, you can very easily do that within your own application because uh, WinRT makes that very easy for you to do in terms of all the language interop. Mm, that's cool. So one of the other things that you mentioned was uh, C++ CX. And I, I just kind of wanted to dig in on a little bit of that for so for people who aren't as familiar with that when they see it you know and they see C++ WinRT you know if, if I don't know much about CX you know what what is the, what should I want to know about it and when should I choose to use that over WinRT so if you don't know much about CX you should just stay there and ignore it it's really <laughs> it's, that, that's a really that's really good to hear though because there's yeah. times where you don't know what you shouldn't know right and right so it's so you said cxx was something that was made in the past and maybe was uh, a little bit misguided uh compared to what developers wanted so with since winrt is newer we can just absolutely ignore that and dig deep into winrt that's right. So C++ CX was invented in a time when it was believed that C++ wasn't rich enough as a language to present the Windows runtime APIs in the way that uh, Microsoft wanted to do. Uh, I, I didn't know it was impossible, so I went ahead and did it anyway. And it turns out you can do it. And uh, certainly the C++ language has evolved and improved and made, made it more possible subsequently to do so. But certainly C++ CX is, is, a, is a technology which uh, Microsoft would love for you to forget existed. Uh, the, it's, it's baked right into the C++ compiler. And uh, the C++ team would very much like to stop supporting it if they could. Obviously, they'll continue to support it in terms of maintenance, but it's not getting any new feature work. Uh, it's also become quite a liability because uh, as the C++ language has improved, it's become harder and harder for the compiler team to continue to support all of the syntax and, of the, and the libraries that are required to make C++ CX work. And so in many cases, when you opt into a newer standard of C++, you opt out of using CX. Or if you have to use a C++ CX, you don't get to use the new features of the C++ language. So it's really a, a something that if you can avoid it, you, you should. If you have active development in a project that's using C++ CX, you should really consider rewriting that code in C++ WinRT. Uh, but certainly, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, please just stay away. It's really not worth getting into. Okay. And then if, if I wanted to... If I'm not trying to talk to the Windows APIs, if I'm trying to just have, like you mentioned before, I'm mixing C Sharp with C++, for example, do I need to worry about WinRT or can I, is there is there a, a more efficient way or easier way that I can go from like C Sharp to C++ and maybe back the other way? Yeah, that that's that's been a common challenge. Uh, you know, there, there have been various solutions even for Microsoft for how to do that. You know, we've had C++ CLI, which is, you know, a way for... Uh, for you to write managed code in C++, and that was one approach. Uh, C++ CX and C++ WinRT is another approach. I, you know, if you have to do that mixing, that's certainly a, a reasonable way to do it. Uh, I would say of those choices that I mentioned, C++ WinRT is definitely your best choice. So you can write your C++ WinRT component yourself just for your own application as a DLL, and you can call it from C Sharp, and it makes it very convenient to do so because you can represent uh, the, the 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 constructs or the types in your component that are implemented in C++ in a way that's very convenient to consume in C Sharp. So you can have classes with constructors, with methods and properties, and you can model all of that implemented in C++ and have it called from C Sharp in a very natural way. Now there there are some there are some there may be some drawbacks to that. So uh, the only other option that I would suggest, if you're looking for a very minimal, low, low level way of interrupting between C Sharp and C++, it, it's hard to beat just having a simple DLL with an export and doing something like DLL import, you know, p invoking that that thing from your C Sharp application. Okay. So a, a, as a very coarse grained way of you know interrupting with a backend C++ DLL, that's a great way to go. But if you need something rich, something with you know types and hierarchies and methods and properties. C plus plus one T is your best bet. Okay, I was wondering if P invoke was like still a legit thing, but I was a little afraid to ask. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's 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 certainly fine. Okay, 
Yeah, I think sometimes as developers, we kind of like we look at a project and we're like, I, you know, I I have a multitude of languages and in, in you know in capabilities that I can bring to a project, but a lot of times we just stick with one where this this project is all C plus plus or it's all C sharp or it's all F sharp, and we don't really you know think of mixing and matching. What are the reasons that I might want to either keep doing that or kind of piecemeal like this part of this project is going to be in this language and what might be the the thought process the pros and cons that or strengths and weaknesses that each language might have in that puzzle sure that's a good question so often often it comes down to a, a balance of productivity versus performance so you might feel more productive uh, in c sharp perhaps uh, maybe your developers are just more skilled in that language and or or even the libraries and, and, and tools are are more efficient or more productive or more advanced in C sharp perhaps for UI development, and then on the other hand you might need more performance for doing some data crunching or or whatever it might be in the back end. So there you might prefer to use C plus plus, even though your developers are mostly uh, accustomed to using C sharp. So there's that balance you have to make, that trade off you have to make. Um, and and it's a hard one. You got to figure it out for your application, and it's very domain specific. I, I would, however, say that a lot of developers still assume, you know, the C sharp of uh, of our father's generation, almost, you know, that it's this old language that hasn't evolved, that hasn't improved, that it's it's just all pointers and 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 memory allocations and heap corruption and all these things. And if you haven't used C++ in a while, you might be surprised to see how, how, how advanced, how simple, how efficient it can be at just doing simple things. So yes, use the, use the best language that, that solves the problem you have. Mix them if you, if you need to, that there's nothing wrong with doing that, but there's always going to be a trade-off. So uh, the, the converse of that is, you know, C sharp is great for productivity and you can often do a lot of things with it that are very quick and convenient, but there's a cost to that. And, and that cost comes in terms of working set. It comes in terms of uh, dependencies. You know, we spoke about dependencies in the news earlier. Uh, all of those things add, add some, some, some overhead. And, and somebody has to pay that. Either it's your developers, you know, they have to figure out how to do all of that, or it's your customers, and they have to pay for the extra memory that it consumes on their on their smartphone, or or the time it takes to start up. All of these things uh, are are an issue. So in in the Windows operating system, for example, there's been a lot of debates around. Well, we should rewrite the shell uh, in C sharp, or in or in or in JavaScript, or in whatever. And every time one of those uh, attempts are made, it, it quickly frizzles out because they realize, wow. You know, we just cannot beat C++ for performance, for working set, for startup time. And and so, you know, your app is not, may not be the start menu. So you may not care. Uh, and and it, 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 C Sharp may be perfectly fine for your scenario. But, you know, there's, there's, there's those considerations you have to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I would say, I, I guess there's probably a couple of comments on that. But like one... One way, like if you're building like a server side application to to mix those languages, one thing I would just have people consider also would just be if you're going to a microservices approach, I think I think one of the drivers of that, if you have a team where you have like, you know, the C++ person and then you have like the C sharp person and maybe they're building different components is that they can they can have those work together in a microservices architecture and, and do it that way. So that would be one other way. But obviously your your overhead versus having those things talk on the same machine in the same process is going to be like orders of magnitude uh, different. Um, so you have to evaluate those types of things, but that would be one way that you could, uh, that you can mix those things together. But my other comment is like around uh, C plus plus. And I mean, it sort of has this timeless aspect to it and, and maybe, maybe C sharp. Well, now, I mean, it's hard to tell, you know, I guess it's been a long time. We're at what, 18 years, 19 years. <laughs> so, I mean, that's pretty darn timeless in like the computer world. Um, but C++ has been like a legitimate language, you know, where you could have written code so many decades ago. And then you could, you could still, if it was, you know, doing some special math or something like that, you could bring that code in theoretically as is, right? And still use it today. Um, and I think there's an appeal to that. Yes, for sure. I I mean, that's that's one of the things that 
is both a blessing and a curse for C++. We, as a language, it, uh, it, it, it maintains compatibility very far back and even, even to C, the language that predates C++. And that, and that has meant that we have millions and millions of libraries of, of, of lines of code that we can continue to compile and run that we never have to, you know, rewrite in C++ to get it to work. It, it also means that the language has these, you know, weird idiosyncrasies, uh, these weird corner cases that you think, well, why on earth did they design it that way? Well, it turns out it wasn't designed that way. It was just sort of inherited. It's just a reality of what we need to support from a compatibility perspective. Uh, but but it is a very unique and interesting language uh, because of that. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, go ahead, Carl, because I know you, this is more your area of expertise. So go ahead on UWP. Yeah. Yeah, so as bringing this back to UWP, uh, you know, this is kind of a very topical question right now. A lot of people are wondering, like, what does UWP even mean now that, um, you know, Microsoft is investing on bringing some of the features that were UWP only uh, and making them available for WPF and WinForms. So how, how is Microsoft approaching bringing those features across and how what's C++'s role in, in that uh, investment that Microsoft's making? Uh, sure. So the, I think a lot of the confusion or the, or the questions arise from the, the fact that it used to be that you would write a store app and, and, and most of the Windows APIs or the Windows runtime APIs were, were, would only work in that context, would only work in a packaged app context where you have a package identity that a lot of the APIs would depend on. And then there was a subset of the APIs that, that, that would also work on the desktop. So you could call them from a console app or wherever you liked. Uh, the, the shift that's happened is that uh, most, most of those APIs now work everywhere. They work on the desktop. Certainly all of the new APIs that Microsoft is, is developing uh, are, are work everywhere. So you need a special exemption, basically, if you want to build a new API today that will only work in a store app or only in a packaged app. You, really, the push is for all these teams to make their APIs available everywhere. So having said that, it means that there's really very little distinction anymore between, well, is this for an uh, you know UWP app or a store app or a desktop app? It's really just a, a Windows API that's available to you everywhere. And you can, you can use, you know, technology from the store app model, you know, in terms of packaging or, or the app model, or, or you don't need to, you know, it's up to you. You, you can pick it and choose the APIs, but for the most part, they will all work everywhere. Uh, there's still a handful of APIs that may, may require that, but for the most part, they are available everywhere. Now, how does that fit into C++? Well, you know, all, all of those APIs are written in C++. All of the newer APIs are written in C++ WinRT. And, and as a developer, you get the choice of calling that using C++ as well. And we, again, we make that very simple. Uh, in terms of efficiency, if you care about performance, uh, then certainly you want to write your app in C++ because there's no overhead whatsoever in terms of doing that ABI round trip. The reality is that if you're writing a C-sharp application, which will tend to be very chatty, you know, you're, you're, you're interacting with XAML controls and buttons, you're making method calls all the time, Every time you hop in and out of the of the CLR and you hop into native code and back and forth, there's there's an overhead in terms of making that work for 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 managed code, in terms of translating reference counts to garbage collected objects and managing all the queries behind the scenes. So there's a different cost to that. Um, so, you know, again, C has a unique role in the world. It, it's, it's used to build the operating systems, but you can also build applications with it. But they, there's those trade-offs you have to make, as we, as we mentioned before. So also, if where I kind of sit is I use C++ to kind of use with some of those older Win32-based technologies. And then I kind of like when I moved to making UWP, I kind of switched to C Sharp. And I remember hearing that there was maybe like a different way of working with those UWP APIs if I was using C++. Is that, was that like a true assumption? I I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I, I don't really know where that might've come from. The, okay. the, the underlying APIs are, are all the same. How you call them is unique to the way, you know, the approach you take. I mean, certainly a lot of bad press arrived when, uh, developers were given the choice of either using C++ CX, which they didn't like, 
or mm. using uh, a library called Whirl, uh, WRL, which was basically a very a very lightweight wrapper around the Windows Runtime ABI. And the, and the problem there was that the ABI, the application binary interface, was never designed to be called directly. It is always meant to be called through a language projection, such as C Sharp or, or a modern C++ library. Uh, the trouble is that because C++ CX was a disappointment, a lot of developers, especially game developers, uh, were forced into using the ABI directly, and that's incredibly difficult, and it's incredibly uh, brittle and, 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 and confusing uh, way to program, and and so that, that caused a lot of people to think, well, this just isn't for C++ anymore. C++ is dead, C++ is a mess, but when it really was all about that library, you didn't make it easy to do that. Okay, that makes a lot more sense now. So if I wanted to jump into making a modern desktop today, kind of no matter what technology base, I should be able to bring those uh, C++ skills that I uh, learned maybe, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, and those will fit right in with those modern, uh, uh, like, application styles. Absolutely, yes. So it's actually easier than you would it would be from C sharp. So uh, in in terms of calling those legacy APIs, so you can you know create a desktop window in HWind with create window ex. You can set up your own custom message pump. You can do all those classic petzold things, and then you can mix in calls to modern Windows API for things like a toast notification, uh, for a shell integration, for whatever else, and it all works seamlessly in the same language. There's no there's no need to have to you know do interrupt to different language in order to call a certain API. Everything works from C++. Cool. Should we all should we all be like playing around with C++ on a regular basis? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am I am definitely jealous of C++ people. Um, you know, it's been God, it would have been 20 years since I wrote any C++, I think. But um I was working with a a big company uh, it must have been five or six years ago and, and they had a whole bunch of VB6 code and they were trying to, uh, well, fortunately, like 95% of their code was in C++ and they were, they were pretty happy about the fact that like all that code that they had around, even though, you know, like you said, there were some interesting things about C++ because of it, they were actually able to bring all that uh, code forward, uh, which I thought was really cool. Just the, the timeless nature of, uh, of C++. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it it certainly depends on what you're doing. I mean, if mm-hmm. if you're building a, I don't know, like a web store, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I wouldn't use C plus right. plus. I, I I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> I would imagine there's you know ASP.NET MVC or whatever the latest version of that is, and that that's that's probably all baked in, and, and that's where you see you know DSLs, domain specific languages, they excel, and and that's great. Yep. Uh, but certainly for for building a Windows application, there's there's no reason why you shouldn't use C plus plus. Absolutely. Well, very uh, plus, cool. I think that with like some of today's uh, applications that are available because of the cloud, a performance and scalability becomes more important than maybe it was five or ten years ago. So, if you're building an application that's going to be deployed to the cloud and just crunching over a massive amounts of data or performing these very highly domain specific things that just take a lot of processing power, I think C plus uh, plus is a language that we should be considering to use more often again. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, Google, Facebook, uh, even Microsoft, we, we all use uh, C++ heavily in the cloud. Uh, it's it's the backbone for so much of what we do. Uh, it's just maybe not the, the thing, the obvious choice when you're building a, a, you know, a new blogging engine. <laughs> right. But uh, it's, it's certainly <laughs> heavily used in the cloud. Yeah, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's somebody listening is just like, oh, that's not true. Like it's C++ is great for all these scenarios. Well, I'm sure I'm sure you can make it work. But yeah, from a productivity standpoint. Um, I would be questioning some of that. Um, anything else you wanted to mention before we move on? Uh, no, I think that's about it. Okay. Um, Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And, uh, so this week we have, um, I have a hardware tip of the week that I wanted to mention. So I have a, uh, I have a MacBook pro that I'm using and actually this tip will work with any laptop, but you know, I have the thing sitting on my desk and I have the screen closed. And the venting on it is actually designed so that even when the screen is closed, you know, it, it can, it can output that heat. Uh, the case, the metal case was every time I would touch it was almost too hot to touch. It was just melting hot. And, um, I ran like this for, I don't know, like a year. Um, and then I'm like, Hey, maybe I should sit this thing vertically. And I ordered a, a vertical laptop stand and uh, I put it in there and, and I can't believe the difference in the thermals on this thing. It's warm to the touch instead of hot. And uh, I don't know, this might be obvious to 
so many people that are listening, but I, I was just astounded that it was that big of a difference. I figured if that air was moving um, and has a place to vent, that it'll be fine. But by stacking this thing up vertically, I think all that heat is able to go off the motherboard and go up through those vents, you know, even when the fans aren't running or if they're running at a, at a slow speed. So that's my tip of the week, which sounds silly, but um, it, it made a huge difference. Well, I know that once you posted that on Twitter, you got a comment pretty much right away that says, well, I just leave mine open. Yeah. And I use that as an extra monitor, but that's not always a great solution. Sometimes you want to have either a cleaner desk or you don't need that extra real estate. Mm-hmm. Really, you you know, you have it as a laptop format form factor because you have to travel or move around. But when you're at your desk, it's really getting gets in the way if you have that up. Yep. And I know that's uh how I prefer to have it is I I like to have it on my desk closed. Um and having uh a vertical place to do this also not only provides you those thermal aspects, but it can keep, you can put this like on the edge of the desk where you can keep it out of the way and you have more desk real estate at the same time. Yeah. It pairs really good with my monitor arms, but yeah, I mean, I have two, I don't know what size they are, 27 inch 4k monitors. And, and honestly, like the screen in the MacBook is great, but it would just not fit in even if I had it next to this. So I used to be in that camp though. I used to have it open, I think like in front of, in front of the other two monitors, but the whole setup is a little goofy. Um, because I've even found like that, uh, what I've done in the past is find a small box to set mine up of just to elevate it to get air underneath. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I literally had, and I don't have a video on right now, but I literally have wood shims sitting on my desk right now because of that. I thought that that would make a difference and it did get some air underneath it. But again, I, I'm just astounded just by, just by putting the thing vertically, um, how big of a difference it made. And I think it was like a $16 stand and it just has like some, uh, some hex, screws at the bottom so you can adjust it to whatever uh size laptop you have so it should work with uh with anything but um i I honestly didn't i it was just kind of on a whim and i i did not think it would work as good as it did but when i went over and felt it and the thing was not melting hot i was like whoa that's that's significant and i haven't tried it yet while i'm running like handbrake and maxing out the cpus but i i have a feeling i'll be running those thermal limits less often because whenever i'm doing that kind of thing the i've checked that the cpu uh, every core runs at, uh, I think it's, it's like 99 degrees Celsius and, and then it, it thermally throttles. It just sits there, you know, the entire time that I'm doing video processing, it, it sits at those thermal limits. So I am kind of curious now. I might have actually eked some extra performance out of this laptop now that's not bumping up against those thermal limits. So, um, that's it about that one. Uh, so. Kenny, we played this. There's a there's a game that we play, and we haven't played it for the last couple episodes, but it's back because Carl found another question. Uh, so you just have to answer this. Which would be worse, needing to yawn every few seconds, which I think I'm going to do now, or sneeze every few seconds? You got you have. I would yeah, I would say sneezing is worse. Okay, so well, yeah, absolutely. I think so too. Yeah. I mean, that's like that's worse that's, in every way. Yeah, I mean. Yawning isn't really offensive, but if you sneeze on someone all the time, certainly if you're a meeting, that's going to be gross. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. Carl. This was, I thought this one was pretty obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. We, it's, it's from, it's from our books. So. Yeah. You need to add, uh, you need to add like yawn and an itch or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very cool. So Kenny, uh, where can people find you? Uh, so I have a blog. Uh, you can go to kennycur.ca. And uh, I, I generally just write about C++, WinRT, or anything to do with C++. Uh, so you can find me there. Uh, you can also email me at kenny at kennycur.ca. If you have a question, just, just send me an email directly. Very cool, very cool. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Kenny, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about C++ and the tools and then the interop with, uh, with WinRT. It's super cool. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was a lot of fun.